Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Ali Wilkes about her Antarctic horror novel, All the White Spaces. Ali is a former criminal barrister who studied law at Oxford, and now lives in Greenwich, where she writes and reads horror. Ali's love of ghostly and creepy fiction might have something to do with her growing up in isolated, possibly haunted houses. In this episode, Ali and I discuss how her trans character Jonathan brought something fresh to her historical setting, how live-action roleplay enriched her research, and the importance of setting in horror novels. But first, here's Ali with an extract from All the White Spaces. From the newspaper clippings, James Australis Randall stared down at me, handsome and commanding. He was broke, nearly bankrupt, but insisted he had to try, again and again, for the South Pole, despite the accident that had swooped him off the deck of his ship, crushed him in the freezing water against the hidden terrible faces of an iceberg, left him shivering and battling for his life in 30 degrees of frost. I wondered what it would be like to die from such intense cold. I imagine it would be rather like falling asleep, Francis had replied and squeezed my shoulder. Not so bad. Randall's accident had been in the Weddell Sea, that treacherous and deadly expanse of water churning with pack ice which blocked the route from the islands of South Georgia down to the Antarctic continent. When he'd returned, he'd tried the ice from another angle where Liam Clark had lost his fingers on the pitiless Great Ice Barrier, had refused point-blank to speak to the papers about it, saying that a man was entitled to leave the past behind. I knew their stories so well and I could see traces of my brother's in the impatient, choppy edges of each clipping. My mother's dressmaking scissors, borrowed and blunted and never returned. I could see them in each pin jammed into the wallpaper, my mother's violent disapproval and Rufus's smile behind her back. Maybe we'll take you with us, he'd say to me, half serious, half joking, eyes fixed keenly on mine to observe my reaction. Would you like that? Don't tease, Francis would whisper in reply. I'd loved him for it and longed to follow them, but knew I never would. My war hero brothers, off on their adventure to the great white continent, I could almost see them now. Invincible, laughing, 
triumphant, leaving me behind again. A half-sob. I buried my face in my hands, stretching my fingers wide, pressing into my flesh, trying to mould myself into someone different, someone who wasn't about to cry. Someone more like my brothers. More like the man I knew I should have been. Hi Ali, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here to talk about your new novel, All the White Spaces. Hi Chloe, thanks so much for having me. What a great opportunity. So can you start us off by talking us through the plot of your novel? Sure. So the novel starts in 1918 um, and Jonathan Morgan, who's the protagonist, his two older brothers have been away fighting in the First World War. He was always desperate to go with them, but because he was assigned female at birth, he has been held back by his assigned gender and also societal expectations. The book opens with him getting the tragic news that both have died of their wounds and grieving, he hatches a plan to honour them, perhaps maybe see them again in spirit, so to speak, by fulfilling their dreams of Antarctic exploration. Um, With the help of their best friend, Harry, he stows away aboard a ship sailing for the South Pole, an adventure. And obviously you can't stow away for very long. He's discovered, he has to fight for his place on board and to prove himself to the men. Um, war has affected everyone on this expedition and it's by no means a happy or peaceful crew. So eventually they hit disaster in the Weddell Sea, which is one of the seas encircling Antarctica, and they have to leave the ship behind. So they end up stranded on shore, facing the prospect of a polar winter without any chance of rescue. And that might be bad enough, but there's a sense of eerie dread about this place and something supernatural which appears to be starting to exploit all their hopes and their vulnerabilities to pick them off one by one. Yeah, dread is absolutely the word. So can you talk a little bit about where your seed of inspiration came from? When did you know that you had a a novel within your idea? So I've always been really obsessed with the heroic age of Antarctic exploration and I've always really loved survival type horror, anything that involves a struggle with the terrain against the elements. I, I absolutely love all of that stuff. And I was thinking really about ways to approach it, ways to make it a, a little bit different. And I hit upon this quotation, which was um, from Fergus Fleming's introduction to my very dog-eared copy of Ernest Shackleton's South. And it's just a single line that says, the concept of heroism died in the trenches. And so I knew that I wanted to do something then that sort of capitalised on that very traumatic post-First World War setting. And I knew that that was something I could could easily spin into a novel and use to drive the supernatural element. Yeah, so your um, post-World War I setting had always been there. So that was the kind of, that was one of your seeds for starting with, was it? Yes, absolutely. I always knew that it was going to address the war. It's, um, I always think of it as a very World War I novel that doesn't actually take place in World <laughs> War I. So throughout the book, there are all sorts of like dreams, memories, flashbacks and so on to try and I, I wanted readers to feel like the war is ever present uh, as it is still for the characters. Yeah, I think that definitely comes across. It's very fresh 
in their minds and and in the readers and and I know in the back of your book you've you've mentioned some sort of sources and further reading and uh, Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy was one of them and, and it did give me real echoes of that when I was reading it. Oh, thank you so much. I absolutely love those books. I think they're just seminal in terms of how they address war trauma. You've got the sort of psychiatric aspects, but also very, very strong queer through line uh, and very strong through line about conscientious objectors and people sort of living at the margins of this national narrative of heroism. I just think mm. they're fantastic. Yeah, your your tension in your book is very, between your characters is very central uh, with their attitudes towards the war. I mean, you've got Jonathan, who's kind of very much in awe of like the glory of war, um, Harry, who carries a lot of the trauma. And you, of course, you've got Tarlington, who, by the way, I, I absolutely love Tarlington. Um, just like <laughs> to put that out there. Um, and he's my berated for being... Ang my angry ginger son. <laughs> and he's very much berated for being um, an, an outcast in, um, in the novel for being a conscientious objector. And you mentioned in the acknowledgements that you worked a lot on this character depth when you were editing it. And so when you were sort of thinking about their flaws and how to make them kind of feel very real, how much was this kind of like difference in their attitude and their experience of war central to your creation of their characters? Oh, I think it was absolutely central. I wanted to have a range of viewpoints, as it were, a range of um, responses to the war. So um, out of the main cast of maybe six or seven people, each one has been affected very, very differently. And they take that forward into the characterization because one of the things that I wanted was that they would carry their experiences of war through into how they dealt with physical disaster in Antarctica and also how they dealt with group dynamics and also how they dealt with the threat of a possible supernatural force. I, I figured it would all be coloured by the war. So you could have all these sort of different approaches and different, um, different impacts. And in the, the editing process, I, I did work a lot on character development with my two very, very lovely editors, Lara and Kat. Um, what we largely did, and one of the things they really sort of pushed me to explore, was the sort of backstory of the relationships between the central characters. So between Jonathan and Harry, pre the book starting, between Jonathan and his brothers, between Harry and the brothers and so on, to sort of round them out as characters even before they set foot on the fortitude so that the reader could appreciate that these were people that came not only with war baggage, but with baggage specifically related to each other as well. Mm. Did you do a lot of work sort of that you didn't include in your novel, so that you kind of just did as like almost working out the backstory? Did you just kind of do some free writing or, or things like that to help you? I did an awful lot of research and because it really fascinated me looking into the treatment of injured soldiers on the battlefield, um, battlefield injuries, um, shell shock, as it was then called, the casualty clearing stations. I mean, there's an entire other novel in the brother's <laughs> experience and Harry's experience mm. at the front. So I really dived into that and it was all incredibly fascinating. And I think maybe 1% was sort of dripped mm. onto the page here and there to give it uh, colour and depth without ever really going into what happened. 
yeah, you say 1%, but there's an incredible amount of research that's come into this novel. And, and it reads so much like you're a complete expert in, in the era and the, uh, the adventure side of it. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you went about the research? Because did you find it incredibly daunting to know that A, you've got to research about the, the kind of historical side of it, you're doing research about uh, kind of the exploration side of it how how did you approach that um you're right that it was actually quite daunting and also adding a layer on the top of that writing from the perspective of a trans character mm. as well so I was um really setting myself a series of challenges there um in terms of the historical and exploration research um my process tends to be quite haphazard, I have to say. I tend to start with the contemporary texts of the era that I love, like Shackleton's books, um, Apsley Cher Cherry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World, um, books of letters from soldiers at the front, that sort of thing, to get a sort of feel for how they talk and what the sort of general boundaries are. And that normally sustains me long enough to put together a plot. I really don't like doing all the research up front and then trying to craft a plot that fits it or uses it because I think that way surely um, madness lies. It's much less important for me to get things 100% accurate or incorporate you know, all my research than it is for the readers to feel like the characters of the book make a sort of coherent world, a, a plausible world that feels right for the time period. So I do a sort of initial research period in which I read the texts at the time, then I have the plot, then I do the writing, and then afterwards I do the sort of the deeper dives and the sort of the little details, you know, like what sort of what sort of clocks would they have <laughs> on an Antarctic research vessel, that sort of thing. Um, and for that, I use a, a lot of the internet, I'm not going to lie. Um, but also, I'm very lucky that this period is covered quite extensively by books um, and by photographs. So I've got a lot of visual aids. And also, um, incredibly luckily, um, we have Scott and Shackleton's ship, The Discovery, actually in dry dock at Dundee. So you can go and you can walk around it, you can go below decks, you can take as I did, as many photographs as you like, do all sorts of sketches and so on, and really sort of immerse yourself in that world. And I found that actually a lot more helpful than spending time, for example, worrying about whether I'd got the right sort of belaying pins. <laughs> wow, walking around that boat must have been absolutely incredible and probably the, the best way to, to really visualise it in your own mind, to write, then write about it in that level of detail. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's a gold mine of experience. Uh, and also for someone who's very obsessed with this era and also the polar greats, it's something akin to a spiritual experience. I, I went on a very, um, a very off season day. I had the ship to myself for most of the day. I was alone in the below decks for most of the day. So it, it was really magical sort of walking through these, these almost haunted feeling places, um, knowing that you're following in the footsteps of all these people you've read about. Mm. And being alone must have helped really kind of capture that atmosphere that you were trying to get across in your own writing and with the kind of the horror element as well. 
Yes, exactly. I found some parts of the ship were inherently, I think, quite creepy. You've got like the wardroom with all the empty cabins leading off it and the big mirror that reflects the scene and so on and so forth. Um, these quite sort of eerie spaces. Uh, and then you've got the sort of warren of the below decks where it's quite dark and it's quite noisy because they they pump in the sounds of how the engine would be and they have the flickering lights and so on. So you can get sort of a real sense of the atmosphere. If not, I think how crowded the ship would have been in real life, mm. because of course you've got um, something like 27 to 29 men living and working on this really quite small vessel. I think that you can really tell that experience for you, that research trip has really helped with your uh, setting descriptions in your in your novel, because I think that's, and I, and I know many readers will agree with me, that's a huge strength of your writing, your ability to capture that atmosphere. Um, Thank you. I was, I was wondering whether that was the most challenging aspect, the kind of the level of research you have to do. Um, I know we'll talk a little bit about Jonathan later, but what do you think was the most challenging aspect of it to write? Weirdly enough, I don't think it was the research. I think the research was quite an easy task to set myself and then it was just working through it bit by bit. Um, the bit I find the most challenging um, was the action scenes all the way. Um, I didn't originally really conceive of it as an adventure horror novel, but as I wrote it, it became clear there was so much action in it. You've got fights, you've got big disaster sequences, you've got daring do up in the rigging, you've got chase sequences, you've got crevasse falls and all of that. Um, and those scenes I found I had to plot out very, very, very carefully and examine very carefully to make sure I wasn't playing fast and loose with, for example, the rules of physics. <laughs> um, and I found that very, very challenging to do. I'm not particularly visual in terms of how I see things as I write. So I had to be very, very careful with those scenes. But on the other hand, I think a book about Jonathan sort of staring into the snow uh, and no action scenes would have been a very, very different problem position and mm. not something I, re I really wanted to replicate it's been done absolutely wonderfully by dark matter by michelle parver and th that sort of introspective novel wasn't quite something i wanted to tackle yeah so obviously this is historical but i know that your love first and foremost is the horror genre and this is very much within that so can you tell me what appeals to you most about the horror genre or kind of how, what you've looked at in your own novel? What appeals to me about horror as a sort of overall genre is I think very, very simple. I just love being scared. I love to read about or see or experience gruesome, gory, uncanny, unsettling things. That sort of thing piques my interest like nothing else. And one of the, I think, key things you're always told as a writer is write what you love. I would say write what interests you, because as you'll know, Chloe, you have to read what you've written several thousand <laughs> oh, times. <yes. laughs> so it, it might as well be something that really holds your interest that you're fascinated in drilling down into. So that, I suppose, is the quite superficial answer. I guess maybe the weightier answer is that I'm really interested in what we as humans are capable of. Um, 
you know, the heights and depths of human experience. And I always think horror is a really vast canvas for that. It's quite an extreme canvas for that as well. Yeah, definitely. And also, like you say, you have got to read it about 700 times and still love it when you read it 700 times as well. (laughs) Yes, I know. It's... um... It's very, very challenging. You've you've got to write a book that will stand up to you sitting down with it mm. that many times. And if you start to bore yourself, I don't think that's a good sign at all. No, <laughs> definitely. And I think that's a real skill, isn't it? You've got you've, to be able to scare and unnerve and unsettle your reader. So when you're writing horror, are you tapping into your own fears while you're writing it? Is that the way that you think? you can best scare a reader by kind of frightening yourself at the same time. I I never thought I set out to do that, to be honest with you. However, if I look at things that really scare me and things I don't like, I absolutely loathe being cold. I, I cannot stand it. And, and you wrote very, such very... a cold book. <laughs> I know. And I'm personally very, very scared of the dark as well. And I've written a book of polar horror, which is, I guess, a great choice because people in the book keep saying, you know, winter is coming, you know, (laughs) the darkness, the darkness is coming. Um, So I think I I did unknowingly tap into my own fears um, with the environment, but also I think with the supernatural element, what has always scared me on a sort of visceral supernatural level is the idea of something that appears human but isn't the uncanny valley effect, you know, the the cursed doppelganger, the idea that you're seeing a fraction of something which happens to look human, but the reality is something truly monstrous. And and that's always been an idea which has obsessed me in horror. Mm, And I think that that kind of awful sort of human, not human vision in the landscape, so bleak where there's, you know, there's enough there's enough going on in terms of trauma and fear and everything else in that kind of environment. And then when you add that into the mix, that's, uh, that is truly terrifying. Yeah. I was very sort of inspired placing it in the landscape by um, Frank Hurley, who took um, all the photographs of Shackleton's endurance expedition. You can see all the photographs. They are absolutely magnificent. But what I always really liked was, he does these wonderful ones which are just like the snow and the ice just covering the the page and then a little black figure in the distance and it's so almost too nebulous to know whether it's human or not they are these faceless figures almost just put in the sale and I always found those pictures incredibly fascinating because I think there's so much built-in menace about the scale of the tiny human or humanoid figure against uh, all that whiteness. So when you're writing something that has as much tension as all the white spaces does, this sense of dread that builds because we as a reader don't really know what's out there, whether, whether it is something, whether it's a, a kind of, a, you know, a, a delusion. How did you go about building that tension, that kind of sense of fear in your characters? Well, I think... One of the things um, about the novel that really allowed me to do that was the fact that it's quite a slow build. Um, I knew from the get-go that the characters would be encountering something in Antarctica. So obviously you can't really show much of the supernatural element too early in the book because they haven't got there yet. 
But what you can do is you can hint and build atmosphere and build this sense of they might be seeing something or they might not. It might just be the sheer pressure of the situation. And I really enjoyed playing with that. And I was very lucky that my editors were incredibly supportive of that sort of slow build, slow burn approach. The things seen and unseen in, say, the first third of the novel um, building up to that. So that's what really helped me, I think, built into the novel you had this pacing that allowed me to just continually keep turning the dial up a little bit, mm. you know, each each chapter and each mile into Antarctica. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, the pace of it really helps because if you suddenly had things happening too soon, you wouldn't be able to sustain that level of, of dread mm. for that length of time. So I think you're right, holding, holding back is the uh, right idea. And I think it's interesting because... Um, when I was querying um, agents and editors, um, some of the feedback I occasionally got was, because this is such a slow burn, you know, could we take it out of chronological order? You know, could we maybe, if you think of, say, The Terror by Dan Simmons, one of the ways he sustains the supernatural threat over such a long book is by having two narratives running in tandem and a multiplicity of characters. So you get sort of the early touch of the monster and then you pan back and then you get another touch of the monster and so on and so forth. Uh, and so that was something that was um, suggested to me as one way of managing the dread in the novel. Um, but it's not an approach that appealed to me and thankfully didn't appeal to my editors either because I thought as a period piece, it works so much better to sort of take it slow and take it in chronological order. So was that ever was structure something you ever played around with when you were kind of working out what you wanted the novel to be oh absolutely like in early drafts and um early on it was it was a diary it was um told in diary format by jonathan in early drafts i did play around with you know having the page from later in the diary slip into the early part of the diary or the sense of, you know, I'm writing with my back against the door and let me tell you what's led up to this point. <laughs> and I didn't feel that was quite right for the book uh, or, or quite right for the sort of the type of story I wanted to tell. So eventually I sort of got rid of all those sort of devices and made it a very straightforward first person narrative. Mm. I think you're right. I think that the way it kind of creeps up on you and, and well, the reader and, and the characters works well within the whole concept of the novel. I mean, their their journey is quite slow in some ways and it's very uh, staggered and they have to be incredibly kind of cautious at times. So I think that that sense of sort of something creeping in the background is, is a really good way of doing it. Thank you. So speaking of uh, your sense of dread, <laughs> one, of the, <laughs> one of the things that's so important to your novel is the, the obviously the, the landscape, the weather, the cold, as we've mentioned, the dark. And when I was reading it, I kept thinking, how is Ali managing to find so many different ways of talking about the cold <laughs> and talking about how uncomfortable the environment is? And I mean, as as you as you can kind of imagine the the setting is is very you know it's, it's one color in a sense it's 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 darkness it's white and 
the, the, the temperature's always awful. So how did you find so many ways to describe the setting and, and was that a challenge in itself? Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you found that I did find those ways because one of the big challenges for me writing the book was that I was filtering everything through the experience of Jonathan, who is, um, you know, a 17 year old from a certain sort of background who doesn't really have much of a flair for the turn of phrase. So one of the things that I always laughed about when I was writing the novel was that I would have these brilliant, well, I thought brilliant, of course, <laughs> paragraphs of description of, you know, stepping out into the polar night and seeing all these things and, you know, sort of very ly lyrically described. And then I would have to go, well, you know, hang on, Ali, what would Jonathan say? And often the answer is Jonathan would say it was dark and cold and maybe a sentence about how the moon looked or something. Um, he isn't really the most lyrical narrator. So I'm very glad you found that he was able to sustain your interest in that way. Um, I wanted to strike a real balance between how matter of fact um, Jonathan and also the period explorers would be in describing the conditions and also these occasional sort of flights of fancy, these occasional turns of phrase that I would read in the original Antarctic texts and think was just just gorgeous. Mm. So it, it was a real push-pull process throughout the novel, I'll put it that way. Yeah, you've got to have some artistic license, haven't you, in, in making your characters maybe describe things in a more lyrical way than that you think they might actually in real life. But I think you pulled that off really well. I mean, I there's only in my head I think there's only so many so many ways to describe the cold but I think you uh you managed it very well thank you I think also a lot of it comes from the fact that I absolutely hate being cold <laughs> and um one of the things I did sort of partially as research for this is I did some live action role playing um which is where you go and you sort of act out a narrative story as part of a game in real life and um the live action role play I participated in was um, called the Demeter and it was a period sailing ship which sailed around the Baltic Sea in October reliving the last voyage of the Demeter from Bram Stoker's Dracula so you can imagine me there in my period clothes I can't wear any of the nice insulated things I am in freezing cold period dress desperately seasick it's raining I'm on the deck I'm hating my life and yet somehow still being forced to come up with story and narrative at the same time. So uh, I found that very, very inspirational because I could just remember how miserable I was. It was an extraordinary mm. experience, but, but my overriding memory of it was how cold and how wet and how <laughs> unpleasant it was. That sounds absolutely awful, but at least it gave you a way into kind of uh, imagining you were Jonathan. So that's probably mm. a, a good thing. It, it was fantastic. And I, I say this with love. It was an incredible LARP and I would love to do something like that again. But it was really immersive. You, you felt like you were there. And one of the things I, I found particularly interesting about it was um, that some of the characters were invited to help with the tasks of sailing the ship because it was a vintage sailing ship. So they were invited to help with hoisting the sails and doing other small jobs on deck. And my character in the LARP was a sort of quite 
picky, um, quite intellectual, quite standoffish scientist. And I found often when all the other characters were like raising the sails and doing things with ropes and having a whale of a time, I was standing off to one side thinking, I don't really belong here. What am I doing? Should I help? Mm -hmm. Should I not help? Am I getting in the way? And that really sort of helped me with the experience of Tarlington in my novel, who is very much off to one side, is very much thinking, am I in the way or not? And um, so I found that really interesting to help me get into his headspace as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can see how that would be that kind of like physical reality for you really helped when you were when you were writing about your characters. So I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan now. He, if for, for people who don't know, he is a young trans man and... I thought the way you wrote about his identity and his feelings towards his gender were incredibly heartfelt and you wrote in a really respectful way. Can you speak about how Jonathan's character came to you? Why did you decide to make him um, a trans character? Thank you. Well, I sort of knew really early on the type of story I wanted to tell, which was about a very masculine world and masculine relationships in, for example, the trenches and early exploration and I wanted to sort of turn a critical eye on that world and those relationships so to speak so I knew that I wanted an outsider voice um, for that world an outsider perspective but someone who yearned for the inside someone who felt it was their rightful place and it had been denied them so a, a bit of hero worship and also a, a smidgen of bitterness as it were um, and I think when you set out to do that, you, there are different ways of accomplishing that, of course. But I knew that I didn't want a sort of classic girl dressed up as boy adventure narrative, even though I adored some of those books growing up. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit different. And the more time I spent thinking about Jonathan, the more time I, I inhabited sort of his voice and his worldview, the more I was convinced that he was certainly a man with a very distinctive male voice uh, and that really sort of buoyed me to take on this challenge of writing a trans main character in historical setting because I thought that it really added something quite different and also something quite rich in terms of the themes of the book which are of course all about identity uh, and masculinity and also self-belief and self-identification so that was really the, the sort of journey I went on um, 
but he was um, he was built into the narrative at an exceptionally early point. I, I knew that this was my lens, this was my window on the world, and I just had to do him justice. Yeah, it plays perfectly, like you say, with the themes of the novel and that that kind of uh, very masculine world. That kind of and you know he's not the only character that has that struggles with being in that environment. So I think it, it adds a, another layer, which is really uh, original and fresh to read and I think he's brought something to even kind of like a historical tale that you don't often read so I think it's a really a really great character to bring into the story. Thank you I'm glad you say that and also uh, as you mentioned there are other characters in the novel who also struggle with what's expected of them struggle with what's expected to, to to be a man or be a hero or to inhabit this sort of uh, this quite specialised world. Uh, and there are, of course, as you'll know, other queer characters within the novel as well. I was um, very clear from the outset I didn't want Jonathan to be the only queer character because I think um, even in, or maybe even particularly in a historical setting, that's unrealistic. So you've talked earlier about how originally it started off um, as a diary um, structure. Um, so obviously that would be a, a first-person point of view as well. Were you always writing from Jonathan's perspective or did you ever consider to kind of keep it third person, whether it be uh, a close third person or did you always go for first person? Always first person, um, always initially a diary perspective. And then when I realised that was hampering the story I wanted to tell, it was making things like action sequences, for example, extremely difficult to, um, to put in in a believable way. I just simply ditched the diary format, but kept that very sort of close first person lens. Jonathan never mentions anything he can't know about, for example. It is very much inhabiting his head throughout the entire book. Yeah, and that works really well because you're exactly, you're kind of with him the whole way. And I think uh, you're discovering things at the same time as he is. One thing I, I wanted to talk about as well is that I, I, I won't give anything away. I think it will be helpful for some readers to know as well that I really appreciated that you didn't go down a route of kind of uh, his outing or kind of a cruelty of, of discovery. And we never learned Jonathan's dead name either. And I know that you worked with sensitivity readers to make sure that you were portraying his um, identity authentically. Can you talk about what benefits you think that having sensitivity readers had on your writing? Oh, I think they were absolutely everything. Uh, I can't thank them enough. They they really elevated the novel and they brought so many really valuable perspectives to it. Um, so I actually worked with three sensitivity readers very early on before I even approached an agent because I wanted to make sure any flaws um, any flaws in perspective or any flaws in portrayal weren't baked into the novel at an early stage. You know, things could be undone at that stage. Uh, and then I worked with a fourth separate um, sensitivity reader through my publisher when we were at line editing stage. And that was something the publisher collaborated with me on. So um, I got a lot of input from very, very different voices. And I wanted to make sure there was a multiplicity of voices because I didn't want um, one person feeling the burden of having to speak for the trans experience, so to speak. Mm. So um, a, a panel, as it were. 
And I think probably the most significant thing that they added to the book or that they helped me shape with the book was the decision to make Jonathan's gender history and identity clear very early on in the novel, you know, right from the get go, that this is Mm. someone who has been wrongly assigned as female, but is already thinking of himself uh, as male. Uh, And so there's no period of extended ambiguity in the first person perspective, really. Um, And I think that that so helped to ground the character and uh, allowed him as a person to come into focus from a really early stage. So I think that that was that was an incredibly important thing they helped me with. But they also uh, helped me with things such as the experience of gender euphoria, because I think it's quite easy to focus on maybe the trans experience of dysphoria, certainly in a sort of quite dark novel um, where things are very unpleasant. And they were absolutely instrumental in helping me to find those moments of trans joy, particularly early on as Jonathan finds his feet amongst the men and on the ship. Uh, and, And I think that was a real delight that sort of added a tone of lightness to his mm. early days on the ship and the early days of the novel, which, which then allowed me to go through greater heights and depths later on with his character. So that, that was absolutely fascinating. And finally, I guess, as an example of a little detail um, that they helped me bring to life was just things like the fact that he is needing constantly to moderate the pitch of his voice. And he's always very self-conscious of that. And The fact that that is much harder, for example, when you're shouting or when you're screaming. Mm. And so I constantly thought about that and I read a lot of articles on it. And that is exactly the sort of little detail that I, um, because I'm not a trans man, would probably have overlooked if I hadn't had these amazing people sort of backing me up and and really picking the novel apart for me. So I honestly can't thank them enough if you ever get a a chance to work with a sensitivity reader I would say to authors absolutely go with it don't think there's an experience of being told you're doing something wrong think of it as an opportunity to get these additional little perspectives and these additional ways of looking at the novel that that are so valuable and they'll just make it better in countless ways Mm. it's like an another having like almost another editor involved isn't it but someone with such um specific detail that is incredibly helpful for for like you say building the authenticity and uh, and one of the things that you one of the things that you mentioned when you were saying about uh the like gender euphoria it comes to mind when Jonathan had his hair cut off completely Yes, a very significant haircut. Um, and that's mm. that's a trope I think I love anyway. So I was delighted to be able to put it in the novel. And just, I, I guess, coming back to what you said about there being no dramatic or traumatic outing and also no use of his dead name in the novel. Um, mm. I did have a sense throughout that that wasn't my story to tell. It wasn't my place to tell that type of story. So I went into the drafting process knowing that that wouldn't happen, that there wouldn't be a dramatic or humiliating outing of Jonathan. And and I wanted it to Mm -hmm. be very much a novel about a man who is trans rather than about a trans man. If you you see the distinction, it's not about the trans experience. It's about Jonathan's experience. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And I think 
that really pays off and it, it's done incredibly well I think I'm sure readers will agree um how well you've um you've written Jonathan and like you say I think the sensitivity readers were clearly a, a huge help with that I want to talk now about your experience with um your writing craft and I know you worked on your the first draft of this novel on the Curtis Brown creative six months writing your novel course so why do you think this was important to you to go on this course how do you think it helped shape your writing and and do you think who do you think this kind of course would most benefit well yes the course I went on was, as you say, a six month writing your novel course. It was in person. So this was way back in the days of 2017. <laughs> it feels like such a long time ago. And it was taught by um, an excellent author and tutor, uh, Simon Rowe, with input from the whole Curtis Brown team, agents, authors and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, it was an absolutely formative experience for me because it helped me take the idea that I could have a published novel and that I could become a published author seriously. Um, it, it helped me view it as a possibility and a real professional possibility, a real career path that I could aspire towards. Um, a shot to the arm, as it were. Um, <laughs> I think it's often very easy, isn't it, to procrastinate on writing a novel when no one's seen it and it's a bit of a pipe dream for yourself and you love the idea of being published, but it's all a little bit nebulous for you and also the people around you, you know, oh, you're working on a novel, that's nice. Um, it's <laughs> much harder to procrastinate and it's much harder to... Um, it, it's much harder to see it as this nebulous thing when you're going to have to show up and talk about the novel and deal with it with your peers, with other writers, with agents, with published writers. And particularly, of course, if they're telling you, you know, that there really is something here, you know, you really must persevere. So I think very selfishly, what I got out of the course um, was confidence, um, mm. the ability to see this as a thing which might happen. But on a very, very craft level, the thing I took away from the course was the fact that novels are crafted. They don't just happen. Mm. Um, it is, I think, the rare person who can sit down and pants a story, so to speak, and just uh, come <laughs> out with something that ticks the boxes in terms of structure, in terms of tension, in terms of craft. The real light bulb moment for me was when we were taught about um, the Into the Woods five act structure from the book by John York. And I think that changed my life because beforehand I didn't have any tools to think about how novels were put together in terms of storytelling techniques. And when I encountered this, I looked at what I have with all the white spaces and I sort of overlaid it and looked at it and I could see the, the outline, the beginning of something which was a lot more compelling, a lot more crafted. And that, that really was a game changer for me in terms of taking my writing up to the next level. So to answer the second part of your question, you know, who would benefit from that type of course? I think, um, Maybe the sort of person I was who have tried writing novels before and have either given up or maybe they're serial novel finishers, people who have participated in NaNoWriMo several times and have a lot of novels in their back pocket, as it were. And it really just helps 
first of all, as I would say, with that confidence, with feeling like the industry is accessible, you sort of know what it would take to get from A to B. Obviously, there are, as you all know, there are dollops of luck involved in the right place, right mm. time. But just being able to see the path, I think, is so important. Uh, and also people who have maybe flailed around in the midsection of their novels or sort of put a novel to one side, unsure as to why it's not working. It'll give you the toolkit to really sort of look under the hood and work out why it's not working and how you might start to fix it. Thinking back now to readers, who do you think all the white spaces will appeal to? Can you think of any kind of comparison titles? I know it's always hard to compare yourself to the greats, but uh, can you think of, of book, other books that are, are, are kind of similar to yours? Um, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to say that if you, if you want a novel which is somewhere between the very small cast spookiness of Dark Matter by Michelle Parver and the rollicking adventure historical horror of The Terror by Dan Simmons or The Hunger by Alma Katsu, I'd like to think All the White Spaces occupies a place somewhere between. Lovely. That is a perfect answer. And I like how you aimed high there. That's great. <laughs> I've also been told, for example, that because the supernatural aspect of the novel is sort of quite elusive, it's not easily boxable. Um, I've heard comparisons to the sort of very liminal ghost stories such as Haunting of Hill House or The Shining. And it would absolutely knock my socks off if readers thought it had something of either of those books in it. Talking of horror, can you offer perhaps three top tips for uh, writers who are, are working on horror at the moment? Gosh, um, I'm going to start with one very, very general tip that doesn't really matter which subgenre of horror you're writing in, because horror is such a broad, broad church, as it were. The thing I'd say first and foremost is make your community early on. Um, horror fans and horror writers are some of the nicest, friendliest, most approachable people and you will be welcomed. So listen to podcasts, join Twitter if you can, review books, rate books, get reading, uh, tap into that community because they're so incredibly supportive and friendly and you will feel less like you are someone shouting into the void. Sometimes, uh, particularly in the UK, horror feels a little bit like a neglected or maybe an underappreciated genre. Um, not so worldwide. So tap into the power of the internet to find your people is what I'd say first and foremost to a new horror writer. Um, secondly, I think, um, for me, one of the most important things about horror is setting, setting, setting. Um, consider what you can do with setting. And if you can pick an unusual setting, so much the better. Or if you want to write what you know and pick a setting close to home, look for the little details that maybe make it scary or, or, or out of the usual. Because I think horror is certainly a genre where what's not shown on the page is maybe just as scary as what is. And it's the setting that puts the readers in the right frame of mind to receive that sort of chill. Um, thirdly, and this again is very personal preference, is what I love about horror is it gives you room to inject this sort of 
hint of the weird in your stories. Um, you don't, I think, have to explain everything in your story. You don't have to wrap it up in a neat bow at the end. I think one of the best things about horror literature is when readers go away wondering how this little element fits into the bigger picture of the novel. You know, it might be the handprint on the window. It might be strange sound that doesn't sound like any of the other supernatural sounds in the novel. You know, how does that fit into the bigger picture? Is it part of the horror or is it not? And I think that sort of like hint of inexplicability is, is where some of the most powerful horror is. Right, that's, that's fantastic advice, so particularly I think with the setting, like you say, even if you're picking a setting you're familiar with, picking up on those little details is a really great way of making your environment very real, even if what you're dealing with is, is out of the ordinary. So finally, I've read that you're working on a survival cannibalism novel, which really appeals to me. Can you tell me about what's next for you? Oh, gosh, it really appeals to me, too. Um, <laughs> survival cannibalism is really one of my big niche interests that I didn't feel I could shoehorn it into all the white spaces. All the white spaces is already quite a long book. I think it's about 500 pages long. And I just felt I couldn't put it in in all good conscience. It would have made it far too long. It didn't really quite fit with the setting and the themes and what I wanted to do. So um, I thought, well, there's probably another book there, isn't there? So I'm working on another um, historical polar exploration horror, which really deals with survival cannibalism and the questions and the fallouts um, from that, you know, how do you live with yourself when you've done what some people consider to be unthinkable? And also what's worse than that? And I think it's in answering those questions that you can have a lot of fun with a sort of psychological driven and very character driven horror, because I always think for me, the characters are as important as the horror. Brilliant. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic, Ali. Thank you so much for being our guest on this week's podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It has been an absolute blast. I've really enjoyed it. That was Ali Wilkes talking about her Antarctic horror novel, all the white spaces, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. (laughs) 